0: Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan episode. Coming up later in the podcast, our fund manager interview is with bond fund manager, Phil Milburn, who manages the Lion Trust strategic bond fund. I ask Phil to explain how bond markets will be impacted by the current high levels of inflation and the interest rate rises that are expected to shortly occur in the US. But firstly, I'm joined by Nina Kelly. Editorial Content Manager at Interact Investor to chaff through a couple of news items related to funds and investment trusts. We're gonna start off with Teddy Smith. At the start of every year, the fund manager of the UK's largest retail fund writes an annual shareholder letter. The letters are always an interesting and entertaining read. He is certainly not one to mince his words. And there were five key takeaways that I took from the letter which me and Nina are gonna run through. The first was performance. In 2021, Fundsmith Equity slightly underperformed the MSCI World Index. It retained 22.1% versus 22.9%. Nina, how did Smith defend his performance?
1: Great to be here, Kyle. Thanks for having me on. In his note to investors, The staff fund manager stressed that the underperformance of Fundsmith Equity, which has been the most bought fund each month on the Interactive Investor platform for some time, was both marginal, which is true, we're talking about 0.8 percentage points, and inevitable. Smith claimed that no investment strategy will outperform its benchmark in every single year and in every type of market condition. He went on to explain that because of the market rotation towards value shares, it was especially difficult for Fundsmith Equity to outperform, given that Smith's investment style is very much growth-focused and that the portfolio is made up of global growth companies such as Microsoft.
0: As you just mentioned, Nina, um, value shares, which tend to be more economically sensitive and perform better when economic growth is on the rise and also when interest rates rise, and not the type of companies that are held in Fundsmith Equity. Instead, Smith favours high-quality, well-established growth companies. Therefore, when value shares are in favour, this is a headwind for growth-focused portfolios, although it's worth putting out that for 2021 as a whole, the performance of growth and value shares was pretty much neck and neck. Figures from FE Analytics show that in 2021, The MSCI Value Index returned 23.1% and the MSCI Growth Index returned 22.3%. However, it was the first year in over a decade that has seen value shares keep pace with and slightly outperform growth shares. Value shares have had a good start to 2022, It's obviously early days, but this could be the start of a longer term trend of the market repositioning towards those economically sensitive shares that will potentially perform well as economies recover from the pandemic and as interest rates rise in order to try and contain inflation. Smith, though, noted in his letter that there were several problems with buying value shares. Nina, what were the main points that Smith
1: made? Terry Smith identified two problems with value shares. The first is to do with timing. So in investment, there's a maxim that it's impossible to time the market. And this is exactly what Smith is saying. The second problem he pointed out is that even if a fund manager has managed to spot a cheap share and get his timing right and make a profit, that is still not going to transform that firm into a good quality business. To quote Smith himself, in the long run, it is the quality of the business that you invest in which determines your returns. You brought up inflation, Kyle, and further potential interest rate rises. Smith also touched on inflation in his letter, saying that he expected the firms in the Fundsmith portfolio to be better able to weather inflation compared with other stocks because of their high margins, which is reassuring for investors. Smith said in the letter that The higher a company's gross margin, that is the difference between its sales revenues and cost of goods sold, the better its profitability is protected from inflation.
0: So we've so far covered Fundsmith Equity's performance in 2021, Teddy Smith's comments on value shares and his comments on inflation. There were two other key takeaways from Smith's letter. The first was that Smith took aim at consumer staples giant Unilever, whose products include Ben & Jerry's and Hellman's mayonnaise. He said the company had lost the plot over its increasing focus on publicly displaying sustainable credentials. One of the examples Smith gave was that Unilever had been defining the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise. Smith quipped that the Hellman's brand has existed since 1913, so we would guess that by now consumers have figured out its purpose, spoiler alert, salads and sandwiches. And the final thing that stood out for me was that Smith defended the fund charge of Fundsmith Equity, which quotes an ongoing charge figure of 1.04% for the T-share class. Most equity funds charge around 0.75% to 1% for the ongoing charges figure, in the letter, Smith pointed out that the ongoing charges figure does not include transaction costs. This is when a fund manager buys and sells. As Smith rarely makes changes to the portfolio, Fundsmith Equities' total cost of investment was 1.05% in 2021. So the cost of dealing added just one more basis point. For other funds, which in the majority of cases, do chop and change their holdings more frequently, their dealing costs will be higher. So to summarize the point that he was making here is that when looking at fund charges, the ongoing charges figure doesn't give the full picture, which has been a personal bugbear of mine and something that I've written a lot about over the years. We're now going to move on to core and satellite funds. Nina wrote a really informative piece on this very subject earlier this month. To start off with Nina, could you explain what a core fund is and what a satellite fund is?
1: Some investors have a single core investment, be it an investment fund or trust, and this core is likely to be diversified, low cost, and suitable to be held for the long term. Whereas a satellite investment is like adding some spice to your portfolio through a higher risk option that could deliver higher returns. Traditionally, the percentage split between core and satellite is 70-30, although you have to take into account your own risk appetite, as some funds are far more adventurous than others, so make sure you aren't choosing, say, a madras when you only wanted a masala. A core and satellite approach is not for everyone by any means, and some investors will stick with just the one fund, their core, and this is suitable for them and their investment objectives.
0: And with satellite funds, given the greater risks involved in pursuit of potentially higher rewards – What would you say are the main things to consider?
1: Well, you really have to do your homework if you are considering a satellite investment. There's no shortcut. And I offer six suggestions for things beginners ought to ask themselves before diving straight in. One, are there gaps in your portfolio? Even widely held investments such as the Vanguard Life Strategy 80% Equity Fund, which is one of II's quick start funds, lacks exposure to smaller companies because, as a tracker fund, it is tracking many global indices such as the FTSE 100 and S&P 500, which are weighted heavily towards the largest firms. Second tip is to think about risk and your own tolerance. Everyone is different, so do your research before investing your hard-earned money. Three, think about your aims. What are you trying to achieve and over what time frame? Four, don't diversify which means don't double up on exposure to certain sectors or countries. Look at the fund fact sheets, which are on the fund manager's websites, so you can avoid buying a satellite investment covering areas that you already have enough exposure to through your call. Tip five, costs. Everyone wants to keep their costs down. If you choose an actively managed fund, your charges will be higher because you are paying for the skill of a fund manager who is handpicking the stocks in that portfolio. So think about the costs of charges over time. And the final tip is think about the ratio between your core and satellite. As I said earlier, traditionally, it's been a 70-30 split, but that's not gospel.
0: The core satellite approach is something that I know that you are considering applying to your own investments. Do you mind running through what you've chosen for the core of your portfolio and the types of funds and areas you are considering to fill the satellite segment of your portfolio?
1: Sure. My core investment is Vanguard Life Strategy 80% Equity Fund, which is, as I've already said, one of II's six quick-start funds for beginners. It's a low-cost option, which was important for me, and the ongoing charges figure is just 0.22%. I very much wanted a buy-and-hold investment, or set-and-forget, so that portfolio management, which is far too grand a term for my own savings, wouldn't take up too much of my free time. I'm considering a satellite investment and areas of interest include smaller companies' funds or trusts, as well as thematic exchange-traded funds. Smaller companies often outperform but are also highly risky, so that's something for me to weigh up. Thematic ETFs appeal as a way to tap into those mega trends that we are all aware of, such as AI and robotics, but these funds aren't the cheapest.
0: To sum up, I think for many investors, a core satellite approach is well worth considering. As you mentioned at the beginning, Nina, it's not for everyone, but it is a structure that is widely respected as it gives investors plenty of diversification flavoured with a bit of spice in racier, high risk, but potentially high reward funds in the hope of generating higher growth. The final point for me is to bear in mind that with the satellite part of the portfolio, it's important not just to simply close your eyes and buy and hold, particularly in the case of those adventurous funds and adventurous ETFs that back a single sector or theme. Such funds can quickly fall in and out of fashion. So it's worth keeping a very close eye on performance. And if that performance takes a notable turn for the worse, assess whether the outlook for the sector or theme has changed. And if it has, it is potentially then worth considering making a change. Joining me for our fund manager interview is Phil Milburn, who is joint fund manager of the Lion Trust Strategic Bond Fund. Phil, thank you for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you, Kyle.
0: So Phil, it seems to me to be a very interesting and challenging time to be a bond investor. There are three big macroeconomic risks at the moment that I wanted to ask you about. And I think that it's best that we take each one in turn. The first is inflation. We had figures out this week for the UK, which showed that inflation is at an almost 30-year high of 5.4%. Across the pond in the US, inflation is at 7%, its highest point since 1982. Inflation is well recognized as the enemy of bond investors, as it erodes the value of income that bonds pay. Given this backdrop, how are you positioning the portfolio to protect investors from inflation
2: risk? Thanks, Carla. I completely agree. Inflation is indeed our enemy as bond investors. And the number you quoted on the states of seeing consumer price inflation of 7%. The last time we saw those kinds of levels of inflation, US interest rates were at 13%, not down at the zero they are at the moment. So not only are we seeing high inflation levels, it's also against a backdrop of very low yields. So your nominal yield before inflation is low, your real yield adjusting for inflation is deeply negative, almost the most negative it's ever been in hundreds of years of history. Clearly, this is a challenge for bond investors. Some of the inflation obviously will erode over time, but there are certain levers we can pull at the moment to try to protect value as much as we can for unit holders in funds. The first and most obvious way is to run with low interest rate risk, low duration in the funds. The duration is simply a number that measures the sensitivity of a fund uh, to changes in interest rate risk. Around the world, duration has been increasing over the last few decades in the great bond bull market as governments and companies have been able to finance cheaper and with longer maturities. We think it's still right to be very much underweight duration risk, running with a duration of approximately three years, compared to what we deem neutral four and a half years, where indices used to be about 30 years ago. But nowadays, global bond indices, such as the Bloomberg Barclays Global Aggregate Index, a big, big, big index, that has a duration of about seven and a half years. So for every 1% rise in yields, you lose 7.5% capital. So keep that duration risk, keep that capital risk low. Secondly, it's about positioning then within the fund, and we much prefer exposure within developed markets to those markets where some of those interest rate rises that are anticipated are already reflected in market pricing. Finally, and this is something I'm sure we'll come back to in a few minutes' time, you want to remain defensively positioned in the more aggressive parts of fixed income, given that when the tide does start to go out, some of the more aggressive parts of the market might be left proverbially swimming naked.
0: And what's your view on the big inflation debate? Is it transitory or will it prove to be more sustained than central bankers are expecting?
2: I'm very much in the camp that inflation is going to be sticky for the next few years. Indeed, uh, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the US Federal Reserve, and I use his term, he retired the word transitory late last year. It's great you've decided that you don't like a word anymore, you retire it. So it seems to me that to a certain extent, the argument on inflation stickiness has been won. But let's really delve a little more into that. Um, UK inflation has not yet peaked, is likely to peak in April when the energy price caps um, increases come through and roughly like to be 1% higher than we saw this week. So that could take RPI up to sort of high eight and a half plus percent level, Uh, certainly scary numbers. U.S. is near a peaking because there's less government interference in the energy markets and is likely to peak this quarter. And headline numbers start to trend down. And there are two factors that will make those trend down. One, year over year changes in energy prices. And it's really just the denominator impact of higher prices started coming through well over 12 months ago. And secondly, there's been a real squeeze in used car prices due to the underproduction of new cars, as there weren't enough semiconductors in the world to build new cars, and the fact that everybody going back to work would prefer to drive rather than getting on public transport generically. There was a big boom there. Some of that will wash out. But the important bit is what's going to happen to that core, the underlying inflation, and this is what I think is going to continue to be sticky. And it's been driven now by that self-fulfilling prophecy of wage inflation. Consumption was already going to be strong, driven by high excess savings built up during the pandemic. Added to that, you're seeing wage inflation in developed markets, more the US and UK than continental Europe, of four to 5%. And this will enable inflation to stay sticky for the foreseeable future. So to throw a few stats at you, Currently in the U.S., 85% of the consumer price inflation basket is seeing price increases. It's not just about cars and oil prices. And another little stat, housing costs are starting to go up in the U.S. Housing costs represent about 40% of U.S. inflation, currently running at about 4% and are likely to increase to about 5% by the middle of this year. So if you've got 40% of the basket increasing at 5%, that's 2% before you increase and add in anything else. So to cut to the chase, will inflation be sticky? Pretty much mathematically, yes. Likely to be in the US nearer 3 to 4%, similar levels in the UK for a couple of years to come, or certainly well above central banking at 2% targets. The next risk, which is linked to inflation, is the
0: prospect of interest rate rises. The Bank of England was the first major central bank to make its move, and the US's Federal Reserve is expected to shortly follow suit. How will the bond market react when there is is a rate rise in the US and possible further rate rises in the UK? Will there be a pickup in volatility? Possibly.
2: What has changed in the last few months is that market expectations have massively shifted um, through both central bankers actively talking in a more hawkish manner and the market adjusting to that stickier inflation paradigm we just talked about. So to put my neck on the line, I think the Bank of England will raise rates at their February meeting. It's not a very risky thing. It would take some incredibly big new news for them to not raise rates, so a new um, variant or I don't know, some big unforeseen event. But outside of that, if the Bank of England don't raise rates in February, I'll eat the proverbial hat of all of your listeners. Similarly, US are going to raise rates in March, what has changed in the last few weeks is the debate over by how much the U.S. is going to raise rates in, in, at their March meeting. It could be by 25%, 25 basis points, 0.25%, or they might go for a shock and awe tactic of actually raising by 0.5% to really start off the tightening cycle. But to declare on what's in the price already... The bond market is already discounting four rate rises this year. Um, so rate rises of 1% equivalent in both the US and the UK. So will there be a pickup in volatility? Probably yes, but the markets have already adjusted to a certain extent to say, yes, we're now expecting this. And it would be a big shock if central bankers failed to deliver. And what type of bonds
0: are winners and what type of bonds are losers in a higher interest rate environment?
2: I think one of the biggest, I would say, surprises or almost shocks in 2021 was the behaviour of the bond market. Over the last couple of months, shorter dated bonds, as we just discussed, have started to really price in those rate rises. But longer dated bonds anything with a maturity really above 10 or 15 years rather than a short-dated zero to five years, have been really shrugging it off. This is the bond market saying that um, central bankers will raise rates, but they, the economies around the world, particularly US and UK, won't be able to cope with raised rates for a significant period of time, more than a couple of years, and peak rates won't be particularly high, around 2 to 2.5%. I think this is folly. I think this is the markets reflecting the last 10 or 20 years and not really looking at 30 to 40 years ago when inflation did hang around for much longer and really eat into those bond returns. So where do you want to avoid? Firstly, in any form of debt, you want to avoid longer dated bonds with maturities of, say, 15 plus years, which still represent 30% plus of global bond markets. Secondly, investment-grade bonds, the companies themselves are very solid and will be able to withstand a rate cycle easily, Um, but their bonds tend to be very duration-sensitive, and um, most investment-grade indices now have a duration of seven to eight years, so still have a pretty long duration exposure, that big risk, that risk of capital mark-to-market loss, we talked about. So that is an area where I'd happily buy, but only at the shorter dated part of the market, again at zero to five years. Finally going down in credit quality, I'd happily still buy higher quality high yield. High yield is often referred to as the junk part of the market. Normally unfairly, a lot of the high yield market is just actually high quality companies that just choose to run with more debt on their balance sheets, choose to finance themselves with more debt than equity. High yield tends to do a little better than most of the rest of the bond market for the first few interest rate rises. As those interest rate rises are vindicating the economic cycle, showing that growth is still going going to be strong. And it's only once that the interest rate rises start to choke off growth, that high yield weakens. But again, even within high yield, prefer the higher quality areas. Um, So those are the double B rated and the single B rated rather than the lower quality triple C rated, which is the riskiest end where you have the highest risk of basically default and capital loss. Again, that's an area you don't want to be exposed to when the tide goes out.
0: The fair macro risk is the prospect of the potential end of quantitative easing in 2022. Quantitative easing is when a central bank buys bonds, which has the effect of lowering bond yields and boosting economic activity. Back in May 2013, bond markets panicked and fell sharply at the prospect of quantitative easing being scaled back, the so-called taper tantrum. How will bond markets react this time around? Uh,
2: yes, it's, that is the well, many trillion dollar question And I talked about the tide of liquidity going out. This is the tide that supported so many asset prices around the world. And when I talk about the size of that tide, um, during the pandemic and then the quarters afterwards, or the economic part of the pandemic, central bank balance sheets expanded globally by equivalent to $12 trillion. Um, And at the moment, for example, well, the Fed is still actually buying, they haven't finished buying yet, and the ECB just continues pretty much with its head in the sand to continue to expand its balance sheet, buying more and more government bonds um, to help stimulate the economy, even though inflation in the eurozone is picking up massively at work as well. But to cut to the Fed, where you're likely to start to see the reversal of quantitative easing, their balance sheet is likely to peak just below $9 trillion. And it is likely now that in March they will start the opposite of quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. Fixed income markets love jargon, but it's basically now just shrinking the size of the balance sheet. The last time you talked about in 2013, the Fed, um, by the time they did get around to tapering, shrank the balance sheet by about 35%. So a similar number this time we should see the balance sheet shrink by about $3 trillion over the next few years through a combination of the natural maturities of the assets they've been buying, both US government bonds, US treasuries, as well as mortgage-backed securities. And they might even start selling some of these assets back to the market over time. Um, This is, to me, a very big deal, this liquidity tide going out. And it will send ramification shockwaves through all markets. It doesn't just affect bond markets. The cheap money that the bond market has provided and central banks have provided around the world has supported asset prices in all kinds of asset classes, anything from high growth equities. And we've really seen that the threat of central bank support withdrawal or at least reduction has meant in the last month and a half The Nasdaq is about 9% off its peak and you've seen some rotation from growth equities into value equities as people have to plug in different numbers to their discount models when valuing growth against value. So will there be volatility? There will certainly be a lot of transitioning in the markets as um, the search for yield changes, bonds yield a little bit more and equity, certainly large growth propositions get challenged a bit, and maybe Elon Musk makes a few fewer billions year in, year out. But yes, um, certainly for asset prices around the world, this central bank liquidity reduction, and it's not full withdrawal, but reduction uh, will have huge ramifications.
0: And given the macroeconomic risks that we've discussed, how important is it for investors to not simply
2: write off bonds? It's always funny, you must have so many from managers want to talk their own book. But for myself as a bond manager, I cannot be any clearer. Bonds are still very expensive. They're less expensive than they were, but they're still very expensive. Um, so it's not up to me to call other people's asset allocation. Um, but what I personally would recommend is that people still be very much underweight in their fixed income allocation. The good news is most investors we talk to are very much near their limit in terms of their underweight. So with yields rising, particularly in those zero to five year maturities, it could be a good time to start reducing that underweight, but I certainly still recommend remaining underweight. Do bonds still have some place? I believe they do in providing some diversity put to portfolios, at least a relatively steady income stream. But again, be very much aware of that risk when you're buying bonds. I would say at the moment, don't chase long duration at all. That's a recipe for losing money. And as you said at the start, Kyle, eroding the real value of your money over long term with inflation likely to stay significantly higher than government bond yields. And the other thing is don't get sucked into late cycle alternatives. There are so many asset classes championing themselves as a strong alternative to the bond market. If you want liquidity and diversity, buy bonds. If you'd rather just stick to equities, buy equities. If you want a true diversifying alternative, do. But most bond alternatives are actually just illiquid bonds that are doomed to get hurt when the cycle turns. And the key message from me today is that with rates going up, this cycle, certainly the asset price cycle, is turning in 2022.
0: And finally, a question that we ask all fund managers that appear on the podcast, do you personally invest in the Lion Trust Strategic Bond
2: Fund? Um, yes, I do. I think it's very important to eat your own lunch, to actually sample your own cooking as a fund manager. I should declare though, um, I have far more at the moment in the Lion Trust High Yield Bond Fund. Um, I'm I still like to think of myself as young enough, despite often getting referred to as a bond veteran, but young enough to be able to live with the higher volatility of high yield. It is at the riskier end of the fixed income universe. I think of it more as a cousin of equities rather than pure fixed income. But for those that can live with the volatility, it's about half the volatility of equities, but obviously a lot more risky than normal fixed income. Those that can live with the volatility through the cycle I much prefer to invest in that, but that's a 5, 10, 15-year view. So, yes, I do invest in the fund, but I have more of my ISA, SIP, etc. invested in the high-yield fund, where I just invest for the next 5, 10, 15 years in basically what is a, a compound, a basic great compounding asset. Phil, thank you for your time today. Thank you too, Kyle.
0: That's all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you know of anyone who might find the podcast interesting and informative, then please do spread the word. There's lots of great fund and investment trust content on ii.co.uk. So do check that out. And we'll be back in early February.